The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Welcome to another episode of Serious Fun, recorded live once again from the 2019 Brown County Library Comic Con. Uh, this week, very special guest, the Hugo and Nebula award-winning science fiction author Martha Wells came by and talked with me about her work, her world building, and whatever else is on her mind, including her love of Stargate. So again, thanks to the folks at Brown County Library for putting this together. And a quick production note before we get started. Um, there's a point later on in the episode where we're trying to figure out the name of an actor who played Joseph Mengele. It is Gregory Peck. Uh, this is one of the challenges of doing shows live, but it is Gregory Peck that we were trying to think of. Uh, so if you're going to send me a, a, or Martha a tweet saying, hey, you got it wrong, um, we, we know. We got it. It's, it's Gregory Peck. So anyway. Uh, Martha, great guest, fun talk. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right down to it here on Serious Fun. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Serious Fun here live at the 2019 Brown County Library Comic Con. So go ahead and clap, applaud, give it up for Comic Con. There we go. I, I enjoy the enthusiasm. Uh, I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. This is Serious Fun. And uh, Serious Fun, if you have not heard of it, and if you have, I'd be a little surprised, uh, is a podcast where we talk about popular culture from the perspectives of the fans, the academics, the professionals that make it what it is. And my guest today is a prolific writer. She's worked on a variety of science fiction, fantasy, young adult series, and nonfiction work. Her works include the Books of the Raxura series, the Murderbot Diary series, the Il Rien series, and I apologize if I completely botched that. Ilrian. Okay, close enough. Yeah. Uh, Tie-ins for Star Wars and Stargate Atlantis and many more. She's won a Nebula Award, two Hugo Awards, two Locus Awards. Her work has appeared on USA Today and New York Times bestseller lists. And yet, somehow, she still decided to come on this show. <laughs> Everyone welcome Martha Wells. Thank you. Yeah. So, Martha, thank you for being on Serious Fun. Thank you for coming to Comic-Con. We're very happy to have you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. And every time I have a guest on the show, I kind of like to ask them, tell me your story, right? So I want to know like, where you came from, how you got here, what got you interested in the line of work or the, the fandom you're a part of. So what is the Martha Wells story? Uh, well, I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I always loved science fiction and fantasy. Um, I read a lot from uh, my local library, the Fort Worth Public Library. Um, when I was reading, I was always a science fiction fantasy reader uh, because mostly it was an old 70s library and the uh, children's section was, you were supposed to go down the children's section and then turn a corner to the shelves to continue it. And instead I went straight down the wall of the library to where the adult science fiction fantasy section was. And all the lurid pulp, pulp paperback covers I wasn't supposed to see at that age and a lot of books that went over my head. But I just became a lifelong fantasy and science fiction reader. And uh, when I was in college at Texas A&M University, there was a very um, active science fiction fantasy group at that time. 
and the author Stephen Gould, uh, who wrote Jumper, uh, worked there, and he did a uh, class one time of, of science fiction fantasy work, writing workshop. And I got involved in his workshop and then threw him to other workshops in Austin and Houston and, um, and just started trying to be a writer, trying to be a professional writer. And I finally sold my first book around when I was 26 years old. And uh, it came out in 1993 from Tor Books, The Element of Fire. And that was pretty much it. And I've been a writer, a professional writer ever since. Okay. So you've been very busy and very prolific, of course. Um, and so... When you, were, when you were starting out, you're reading those novels and you, you're going in looking at the covers you weren't supposed to be looking at, the yeah. torn shirts and the murderous robots and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, what was your, some of your favorite authors? Like, what's the stuff that drew you to particular works? Um, I think um, Andre Norton was a big early favorite. And she's, um, she wrote a, this was kind of before young adult uh, was a thing. And uh, we just, they just had children's and you went straight to adult. Uh, young adult was a category that was actually created by librarians trying to bring out adult books that, that the older reader, the kids that were becoming older readers would still be interested in. Um, she wrote a lot of that. Uh, she um, uh, wrote a lot of different kinds of characters from what was popular at the time. She wrote a lot of characters who weren't white, uh, characters who weren't particularly powerful. Um, they were usually people who were struggling to survive. Um, they were not the chosen one characters. They were often marginalized. Um, and someone, I can't now remember who said this, but her characters tended to be people who were struggling desperately to stay alive. And at the end of the book, their reward was basically that it was a little easier to struggle right. to stay alive. It was kind of a different kind of book. And she was very prolific. Um, a little bit later, I also was a big fan of Judith Tarr. Um, who didn't, I don't think she wrote much science fiction. Uh, she has uh, recently, but uh, she mostly wrote fantasy. Um, she was a medieval historian, so a lot of her fantasy set in the Middle Ages is very accurate. She wrote a lot of th things that were more reflective of the actual, they're sort of called historical fantasy. Mm -hmm. and I really loved her and still love her work. Phyllis Ann Gottlieb, who's a writer a lot of people haven't heard of, she wrote... Um, um, Science fiction, I think, was a bit ahead of its time. She had a lot of alien characters, um, uh, really far future uh, galactic civilizations. She didn't write many books, but the ones that did, I, I was really a huge fan of. And then Ursula Le Guin. Ursula Le Guin was another favorite with uh, Earthsea. Um, those were probably one of my favorite books. I probably had that first copy of um, the first book in, the, in Earthsea and just read it to pieces. And also Janet Kagan, who wrote um, Star Trek novels. I actually did read a lot of Star Trek, and they didn't have Star Wars novels when I was a kid. Um, and actually, it took quite a while after Star Wars came out before the novels started to show up. Um, Janet Kagan wrote a couple of, of science fiction books and then a Star Trek novel called Uhura's Song, which is, again, primarily about alien characters. So those, those were a big influence on me. Okay. Now, now you, you mentioned that, of course, you, you grew up on Star Trek novels. Would you consider yourself a... I, I always hesitate to use the term Trekkie because some folks don't really dig it. But are you more of a Trek person or a Star Wars person? Uh, kind of both. Um, again, they didn't have... When I was a formative fan, I guess they didn't really have Star Wars yet. So um, Star Trek was what I really first got interested in. And also some older stuff that is probably not well-remembered, uh, uh, Land of the Giants... 
which I still think was an absolutely awesome show. It was an early Irwin Allen show and uh, Lost in Space. We got to see reruns of Lost in Space. Um, and then Star Wars came out when I was 13, I think, 12 or 13. And then that kind of accelerated my uh, love of science fiction and fantasy quite a bit. Now you mentioned, because you actually spoke at the university yesterday, so mm -hmm. I, and that was one of the things that kind of jumped out, is you sort of identified Star Wars as this kind of turning point in science fiction, especially for attracting new um, and often people who are not as well represented in the genre, new writers mm -hmm. to the genre. Yeah, I really think it did because it, um, before that, you could find science fiction and fantasy books, but it, they're just, I mean, it's really hard to describe how different it was being a science fiction and fantasy nerd at that time versus what it is now. Um, it was not mainstream. People made fun of you. You were living in your mother's basement. You know, you mm -hmm. didn't know what was going on. You had your head in the clouds, all those kind of old people things that you hear. You know, it was really, uh, people kind of think that's exaggerated, and it was not exaggerated. Um, uh, you were just considered that you didn't, you read this because you, um, you didn't understand the real world as opposed to it was fun and you just wanted to read it. Um, and Star Wars kind of changed that. Cause I think people saw that fancy and si or science fiction and fancy was fun. Um, it was popular. And that really started a lot of a kind of a cascade of other movies. You know, TV movies even and other things and other shows, TV shows. That's what started Battlestar Galactica, basically. Um, and it, it just became suddenly, and it's, it's kind of in this gradual, slow build where suddenly now it's popular to like science fiction and fantasy. It's a thing that a lot of people like. I mean, you would never see these kind of events back then where the library would have a Comic-Con and everyone would dress up in costume and it would be cool, you know? It was like people did costuming at kind of the early science fiction fantasy conventions, but that was even weirder than just liking science fiction fantasy by itself. And now it's just a fun pastime that, you know, we all do at one point or another. Yeah, it's hard to find people who aren't into it at this point. Yeah, really. Like you have no interest in something, whether it's the Marvel movies or Star yeah. Wars or, you know, whatever, like speculative fiction like Ray Bradbury or what have yeah. you. Yeah. There's uh, so much more of it and so much more different aspects now to yeah. be fans of. Okay, so you, uh, so you, you uh, read a lot of sci-fi at a young age. Star Wars came out, that was big. And I know that part of your story is that you went to college in part based on the fact that uh, the college you went to had a sci-fi club, correct? Yeah, it was listed in Starlog. Starlog magazine back then, it was... Um, an early magazine for uh, science fiction TV and movies and the person who ran it, Carrie O'Quinn, was a big, also liked books and, and everything, so he tried to make it kind of a, cover all genres of science fiction and fantasy. And one of the things they did was they had listings one time of local science fiction fantasy clubs because this was before the internet and it was really hard to find other fans. If you didn't happen to have someone in your class at school or whatever who was another fan, then you, you, you were kind of very isolated. And so he was trying to bring fans together, and so they did these listings, and they did them quite a bit. And I saw the Texas A&M had a fancy and science fiction club called MS, uh, Memorial Student Center Cephid Variable. And so I basically went there so I could join that club, and I did. And we ended up, they also had a, a science fiction convention that they put on every year. Uh, and I was chairman of that in 1986. So that wow. was kind of a big, it was a, it was a big decision and it was a good decision for me. It ended up in being in the long run. So when's, when did you publish your first story? Um, 
My first, my first published thing ever was The Element of Fire, the novel The Element of Fire in 1993. Okay. So you've been, so you've been at this for a while now, and, you've, and there's certainly a lot to talk about here. Um, but one of the things that kind of comes out a lot, and you talked about this at uh, the talk yesterday, um, and, and he has really interesting things to say about it, so I just wanted to kind of get him out here, too, was this focus on world building. You have mm-hmm. a lot to say, and you've thought a lot about how we create these fantastic worlds, whether it's Westeros or you know, the, the galaxy in Star Wars or that sort of thing. Um, how do you go about building these kind of cohesive worlds? And I guess the first thing I would start with is how you begin, right? Do you, do you start by thinking, okay, there's a story I want to tell and I'm going to build a world in which that story makes sense, or do you start by thinking, okay, there's this world I'm interested in, and then you find a story to fit it? Uh, I usually start with the character, and basically, you know, the, the character's going to have needs and things they want to do and need to do, and they're, you know, they might be trapped somewhere, they might be trying to survive, and you kind of start that story you want to tell, and then you kind of have to develop the world where that story can take place, and the kind of world that will create the person you want to write about. Uh, because nobody's in isolation, and usually when you, once you create that person, you have to create not only their, their physical environment, but their culture and everything else, and the cultures they're going to interact with, and how these cultures treat each other, and that all just blossoms into, into your world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the things I was talking about yesterday was choices. I mean, we hear a lot about fantasy, even now, is generally portrayed it's kind of like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, where it's primarily white, it's primarily male characters, and these things are considered historical, which, of course, they aren't historical at all. Uh, that's not how the world was at all. Yes. Um, that's one of the funniest things. Like People are like, like why, are, why are the women treated so badly? Well, that's because how it was back then. I'm like, there was no back then. Right? Yeah, like, it, it's, it, you know, they, there's no historical basis for a lot of the things they, they insist on. It's like... Flying, flying witches is okay, but, you know, gay people are not okay. Right. Somehow gay people weren't invented then or something, or black people weren't invented then, and so none of those things are okay. But, you know, all the magic is okay, all that kind of crazy stuff is okay, but, yeah. So they pick and choose. And we were talking about yesterday that all those are cho- choices. There's nothing, that's, there's, no, there's nothing that's historical about it. It's all choices that the author makes when they create their world. Okay, so you, you as an author, of course, make a lot of choices about how you build your stories out. And so um, when you look at these big multimedia, because everybody wants to make that kind of next Game of Thrones, next Star Wars, next uh, what have mm-hmm. you, um, how do you balance this kind of demand for this huge sort of sprawling world that can support not only one story, maybe multiple stories, but also actually telling a coherent story, right? Like, because one of the things, because uh, I'm dabbling a little bit in this stuff myself, and one of the things that gets challenging is, you know, like I had this very specific thing I wanted to do, but then we start adding, like, okay, so this part has to make sense, and I have to build out this, and that means I have to build this other social structure, I have to build out this other thing, and eventually I'm like, I don't want to do all this extra stuff. Well, you have to focus on the story that you're, the character, the, the, the point of view. That's kind of where point of view is so important. Your point of view is basically you know, the character whose head you're in as you write, and you might have multiple viewpoints, like, um, you know, we see, like, the big, the the typical big fat epic fantasy has, you know, multiple points of view. Um, I've always liked, better like to write, and also like to read books better that have, that really stick to maybe one single point of view or a couple of others. Um, And you're writing from that person's perspective, and so, 
you know, you don't want to make these asides too mm -hmm. much. You want to talk about what they're seeing and what they're doing and how those and whatever else matters to them at that moment. Um, because that's what the reader is interested in. The reader is experiencing the story along with your viewpoint character. They're not going to, you don't really need to give asides about, you know, things in the world that don't impact, you know, that particular story at the moment. Uh, I was talking, I was on a panel with Warren Spector, who's a, um, uh, he does video games. Mm -hmm. He's a big, pretty big deal. Uh, JSX game. and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. And he was talking about building a world, but leaving, leaving space in it for more development and leaving places, not creating boundaries and saying things like, you know, just for a very broad example, it's like, well, there's this one country and then there are the mountains around it and nothing else exists in the world. And you don't want to do that because you don't want to give your world that closed in feeling like you're living in, you know, this tiny little area and it's a bottle and then nothing's ever going to come in or out. You want to feel like it, you are on an entire planet or an entire plane of existence. And just not giving, not putting those boundaries in, and not telling, and not not determining too much, and telling people, well, nothing like else like this exists, because well, you might want it to exist, you know, in the next story, and just kind of leaving space, you know, as you build out, and and leaving yourself room for more development. Now, one of the things that you talked about that was interesting as well was this idea of building a fantasy world or a sci-fi world that's based on our actual world. Um, are there what kind of challenges or what kind of things do you want to look out for if you are doing that? Well, it's kind of called historical fantasy, and it's usually taking it's it can be set in our world or it can be uh, um, in a world that feels like our world. And one in in the Ilrian books, uh, a lot of them are kind of based. It's a created world, but it's a created world that's based very heavily on um, you know early 19th century or late 18th century France. And the problem with that is you can you can research you know you want to research to make your world feel like that world, you know aside from your magical creatures or your magic that you're adding, but you can research yourself into never doing anything else because you can just fall down rabbit holes and uh, the people have talked about you know different tangents they went off and they spent like three days trying to research this one thing for one sentence. Mm -hmm. With me, was it how wine labels were, how wine was labeled in um, uh, late 18th century France? And, and uh, you know, I, that just, I know it was actually it was wine labels in 17th century France. And it's like they, and finally I just decided after like, you know, a couple of days of trying to look this up because I just couldn't find it anywhere. And this was before the internet too, so I was having to go to the library and actually pull out books and look. Um, I just decided they're just going to write it, they're just going to handwrite it on there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it, it came in barrels. It didn't come in, you know, uh, then they didn't use, they didn't use to fill the bottles. So we're just going to write it on the bottle. And for one sentence. And so you really have to watch yourself because you're probably doing this and you're probably setting it in that time period because you love that time period and you love that feel of that world. And so you just have to watch and make, make sure you don't spend a lot of time researching something that, is not that important to the book. <laughs> so this is all great. I, I think this is all fantastic advice. Um, I want to kind of like take that and sort of apply it to your own work now, right? So you've had a lot of different stories. You've had a lot of different series you've worked on. What would you say is kind of your signature, like what makes a Martha Wells story a Martha Wells story? Um, characters who are sarcastic, um, who have a lot probably... Um, 
a lot of things going on who kind of have, have you know, maybe problems with anxiety or depression and who are desperately trying to conceal that through sarcasm and ironic observations of things. Okay. Uh, and, and what do you think compels you to write those kind of characters? Uh, me, my brain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's kind of how I am. Um, and I'm just kind of writing what I know. Sure. Um, I was really surprised someone was kind of mocking me for always writing characters with anxiety. And I was like, I thought that's just how human brains worked. I right. didn't know there was another option you could have. And, and, and one of the nice things about that, of course, is do you ever get like uh, feedback from people who are also have anxiety and that kind of thing that this work speaks to them? Uh, particularly with um, uh, the Murderbot Diaries, yes. Um, there's a lot of people who feel a connection to that character because of the way it is. And, um, also because of things like that character does not like to make eye contact and, and issues like that. And there are a lot of people who really feel a connection there. Let's talk about the Murderbot Diaries. So um, you just won a Hugo Award last month for the most recent novel in the series. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Um, let's talk about that series. If, apart from having maybe the best name in all of fiction, <laughs> what would someone who has never heard of the Murderbot Diaries uh, and picks this book up. I've actually, again, this doesn't play well in audio, but I'm holding a copy of the Murderbot Diaries, All Systems Red, which I believe is the first one, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so if I'm picking this up off the shelf, knowing nothing else about it, what kind of ride am I in for? What am I going to expect? Um, it's far future science fiction. It's an adventure story. Uh, the main character is uh, part human, part machine security unit. And it's supposed to be controlled by a governor module that basically um, keeps it under control at all times. And if it uh, makes a mistake or deviates from any order, then its, its brain is fried, basically, and it's killed. Um, and this is a character that managed to hack its own governor module and free itself. And the perception in the, the society and this culture is if that happens, the, the sec unit would then go on a murderous rampage and kill, kill everybody. Instead of going on a murderous rampage, the character decides to download media from the, basically the, the satellite streams that it can get in, uh, get in contact with and just watch basically TV shows. And, um, and continue to do its job and pretend that it hasn't, that it's still being controlled by the governor module, and it gets very good at that. And in this first story, it's uh, been rented out to a scientific expedition on an alien planet, and they're surveying the planet to look into just for future exploitation, basically. And it actually likes these people. It starts to like this this group that it's it's protecting, and it find and it ends up at a point where to protect them from something that's trying to kill them, it has to reveal that it's, it's hacked its governor module and it's not under control anymore. And so that's, that's the first book. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume there's a lot of like philosophical discussion about uh, purpose and direction and that kind of thing? Not so much. Uh, <laughs> um, not so much as discussion. It's, um, it does think about that. It thinks about what it wants, but there's not a lot of, um, um, Nobody's uh, shouting themes on a rooftop or anything no, like that. No, nothing yeah. like that. Not doing the Chris Nolan thing where you're just yelling at the audience what the movie's about. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, this next one's a bit of a personal question for me. Um, I teach games and game design mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, I know we have some, uh, one of my fellow faculty members is out there who also teaches. I, um, 
You have done some writing for Magic the Gathering, mm -hmm. the very popular collectible card game. Mm -hmm. And I've got to ask you some questions about how this came about because the Magic the Gathering universe is one of those things where there is so much happening in it and yet for most people the only thing you get about that universe is there's little text on a card that makes some comment about what's happening yeah. in the picture. Right? So how did you get that job? How did, well, how did they come to you and say, uh, Martha, we want you to write for a card game? Actually, they came to my agent. Um, it was, uh, they had decided they, they do the magic story, which are basically stories that accompany each, um, each new card release, each new expansion set. And usually there'll be like 12 to 16 stories. And it will be, it'll basically be an online novel that they're posting chapter by chapter each week. Um, on, their, on the Magic the Gathering website. And they want, they'd been doing it for a while, and they wanted to get uh, more professional fancy authors to write it uh, instead of writing it in-house. And so I was one of the first people picked. And they originally asked me to do 26 stories, and that was a bit much at that time. I couldn't do that, make that long a commitment. So we got it down to 12 stories, and then they took other sections of that and expanded it and, and gave it to different authors, like Nikki Drayden did, I think, the, maybe the next section. And Kate Elliott also did a, a section. Um, but I was doing, I was offered the, um, basically the Return to Dominaria section, which was the next expansion set. And um, uh, that was it. We, they had, there's a story team, and but because this whole story is like 50 years long, with all these different characters and these different, um, you know, that take place in, on all the different planes. And they've been working towards a conclusion of the Nicole Bolas story for quite a while. And so they did have an outline that I had to work from because there were certain plot points that ha basically had to, be, um, had to be gotten out in these stories. It's, as, it's the new characters meeting the older characters from Dominaria. And... So some of the story sections were, they were very, fairly tightly outlined. And then others were like, well, this character meets that character and they have, and we get in the backstory. And so the rest of it was pretty much me. And I got to develop some backstory for new characters that had just been created for Dominaria and uh, come up with their relationships, if they were friends and how they interacted with each other. And I got to bring back the weather light, which was the big, the big neat ship and, um, I, I, yeah, the weather light. I remember the weather light from yeah, the end. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And um, so I got to do all that, and it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, and so that's kind of interesting because. Uh, and so, uh, did you write any of the the text for the cards? No, I didn't okay. write the text. Okay, that's actually text. separate. And actually, I didn't see any of the text that's written that was written separately. Um, they had to really the the story team editor had to kind of work on it. Um, it was Nick Kelman to let them let me see the art mm -hmm. because basically if you have the story text and you have the art you have the cards and um, the mechanics and then you can sell them so it's right. like they have to really be careful about letting the art out before the release date that is and interesting. they do a lot of things to make sure that that doesn't happen and I had to put just to have the outline and the world building guide for Dominaria, the new dom the the expansion on my laptop, I had to like take security measures I don't normally have to take with it, and um, I did get to see. I went I went up there to their office and actually got to see a bunch of stuff and, and take notes and talk to people. And they did finally send me some 
some of the art images, but the text was not accompanying them. I think we only got to see the text towards the end of the process. The whole thing took about three months. And uh, towards the end of the process, we saw some text, which was really helpful because there was, we were looking for, I was looking for an antagonist character to show up in one of the later stories where it was Teferi's backstory, actually, and I needed someone for him to kind of have a, a, a fight with. And we, and we, Nick picked out a couple of characters and we said, oh yeah, this guy, this guy looks great. And so I kind of was writing the story. And then we got the, the text for the card and it's like, this guy is not a bad guy. This is a good guy. <laughs> and so it actually made the story better because I had to kind of write why someone who's essentially a good person would do this and why the conflict between them. And it turned it into a much better story. So that actually worked out really well. But yeah, you don't get to see all the elements. You're kind of just working with the outline and then some of the art. Now you've done um, a few different kind of licensed tie-in works. I know that mm -hmm. the bulk of your work is original, but you have done a little bit of stuff for Star Wars and Stargate. And uh, last year we talked to John Jackson Miller, who'd actually done a lot of, of tie-in work as well. Mm -hmm. What has been your experience working I mean, uh, you know, with Star Wars and Stargate and these other properties? Uh, Stargate Atlantis was the first one I worked with, and I was a huge Stargate fan. I'd watched all of SG-1, and I'd actually watched the first season of Atlantis was out, and that's what I had to work with, basically, and I, I actually had to go back, and we hadn't, I, I hadn't, when I was watching the first season of Atlantis, I didn't have any idea I was going to write these books, so I had to go back and... Um, and this was, you know, we hadn't taped them or anything, and the DVDs weren't available, and, you know, it wasn't as easy to find stuff online at that point. So I was desperately trying to go back and watch the episodes, because when you watch something just as a viewer, you're not taking a lot of notes on stuff, and you're not, you know, thinking about the mechanics of how the world works. So I had to do that, and um, uh, MGM at that point was not, they were not particularly particular about what could and couldn't be done. I think the only thing they said was, I had to turn in outlines, but they didn't, didn't critique the outline. And um, all, the only thing they said is, you can't kill any characters who are actually characters from the show. If you want to kill people, they have to be people you made up, basically. It's like, okay, good. Um, and so it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I got to do pretty much, you know, and I was writing it thinking, um, no, there's stuff I put in there. I put some of the, some of the humor, uh, I kept thinking, well, they're going to want to take this out. And then they didn't, so that was really nice. I got to make all my, my innuendo and jokes and everything. Um, so, again, you've, you've, got, like, you've been very prolific. Um, and I want to ask about a couple of your other series, too, if that's mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the books of Rexura. What is this about? Those are fantasy, and they're set in a secondary world that basically has no relationship with Earth at all. Um, the main character... Is, was an orphan who's a shapeshifter, and his other form kind of looks like what we would think of as a demon. He's, he has wings, he can fly, he's covered with scales, um, his big teeth and claws, um, and he resembles, unfortunately, um, another species that is very much feared because they're the big predator species that will come in and descend on entire towns and sometimes cities and just kill everybody and because that's their that's their biological imperative, that's how they feed. And um, he, he doesn't think he's one of them, but he doesn't know. And he, in pretty early on in the first book, in like the f first or second chapter, he runs into another member of his species and finds out he's actually a Raxura. And it's a different but related species. And they, um, 
and he goes off is goes off with this other person and finally finds his people and that's the beginning of the story then he has to try to fit in and it's a very complicated matriarchal culture that's polyamorous and there's all these high there's he's an important part of that hierarchy and um, they are also the the colony he finds is also dying so he has to um, you know try to help them and try to find a place to survive so that's what those are about and there's five novels and uh, two collections, two novella collections. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. So again, we have this, uh, this other theme. So if Murderbot's kind of about this notion about, uh, you're talking about anxiety and purpose and that kind of thing. This one's more about the notion of, I guess like the, the, the sort of preconceived notions we might have about somebody based on you know how they appear. Yeah, a little bit of that, but also basically trying to fit in when um, You've never had a place, finding the place you're supposed to be, and then having difficulty fitting in because everything in your life has basically pushed your survival skills are the opposite of the skills you need to actually live in this place. Yeah, and that's interesting because I think that there's this sort of inherent notion um, that's very popular to science fiction and fantasy authors, even though, of course, this isn't the way it is now, right? Um, But certainly back in the time you mentioned, there was this sort of, if you were involved in science fiction and fantasy, you were kind of an outsider by definition, mm-hmm. right? And do you think that still carries through to a lot of writers? Or do you think that we're that like? Do you think that there's a point where we will kind of like move away from that, or is that just sort of something that should just sort of be inherent in these genres? Um, well, I think it's hard to sh- kind of shake that off. Mm-hmm. I actually had saw someone comment on the Raxura series that they didn't understand that um, once. Moon, the main character, gets to this place where he's supposed to belong, this colony he's supposed to join, why everything wasn't fine then, and why he didn't just immediately lose his, you know, uh, 30 years of living in the wild trying to survive by himself, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's like, because that stuff really sticks with you, so, I guess PTSD is another theme Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of my books, is that um, it's trying to learn to live with your your own brain, even when it's trying to, you know, do terrible things to you, basically. Interesting. Okay, and then um, uh, the uh, Il Rien series. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned that this one's kind of set in a sort of historical fantasy setting. Yes. In Fr- uh, sort of inspired by uh, 17th century France? Well, the first one, The Element of Fire, is in 17th century okay. France, and then the others are later, and um, uh, Death of the Necromancer is sort of a late 18th, early 19th, and then the uh, the trilogy is more like a 1920s. Okay. And so this one was inspired by a particular affinity you have for that time period, correct? Well, yeah. I really, the, the first one was I wanted to write, you know, when I was, when I was working on The Element of Fire, a, a lot of the fantasy was sort of medieval period fantasy, very kind of, or sword and sorcery, and I wanted to do something with actual, a little bit more technology. Um, printing presses and weapons and, and things like that. So I, it was kind of based on also like a, a Three Musketeers type story. Okay. So there's swashbuckling. There's swashbuckling. There's swashbuckling. So swashes are one, buckled. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's very important. I, I think that we don't buckle enough swashes mm-hmm. nowadays. It is. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've got, uh, and I know that one of your next big projects is uh, the Murderbot, the next book in the Murderbot series, correct? Yeah, the novel. Okay. Um, but... Is there anything like just like I asked the same question of uh, artist Gene Ha earlier, uh, in, you know, today or you know last episode if you're listening to this, mm-hmm. um, and I asked him, you know, like what's the big thing if you you could look back on your career, 
and say, this is the thing that I'm so happy I did or the thing I always wanted to do. What is that? Do you have something where you're just like, there's something I've always wanted to do and I haven't done it yet? Um, I don't think so. I've done a long fantasy series, The Books of the Rexera. That was probably, um, that's probably been the favorite thing I've written so far uh, in fantasy. Um, just building that world. Um, I might still go back to it and just with different characters and a different part of it because it was the world building, you know, I'd really, um, I just really think I did a good job on it <laughs> and I'm really happy with how it turned out. Um, I don't know my, a lot of people I know, you know, once they've written, they've written short stories and science fiction and fantasy novels and everything and their kind of ambition is maybe to write for TV or write mm -hmm. for movies and that's really not my ambition. Um, I just want to keep writing novels. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting you bring that up because I feel that you see this a lot in comics too, right? Yeah. That the idea is that we use this as a launching pad or mm -hmm. an IP development farm. Um, certainly if you look at like Marvel and DC, that's kind of how they see the comics arm right now. Yeah. Um, but it's weird to see writers and artists kind of internalize that, right? Like Mark Miller, for example, has been criticized because pretty much he writes comics so he can sell them to be movies or TV shows. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, I don't know, because um, comics is such a, a complex form in mm -hmm. itself. Um, I think it's, it's, it's clearly related to movies and TV and the visual storytelling, but it's also its own thing. Right, but even with novels, though, like you see, you see a lot of novelists kind of trying to get to that point as well. Yeah, and again, it's like, that's a really cool thing to do, and I love TV and movies. I watch yeah. it almost all the time, but um, it's not something I, that just appeals to me to, to, uh, as a, to be a writer of. Hmm. Okay, so um, you got the Murderbot, uh, next, the next novel in the Murderbot series. What's the, what is it called? It's Network Effect, okay, and it's Network. coming out in May, May 5th okay. of 2020, and it's a direct uh, sequel to the, the current series. Okay, and are there any other big things we should keep an eye on uh, that's coming down the horizon? or Not so far. Uh, not that I can announce or anything yet, but, okay. uh, and really not so far. I'm still um, working on things for uh, 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 next year. Okay. Um, so, if people want to find out more about your work, they want to, you know, find out how to get a copy of the Murderbot Diaries or the books of Raxura or see anything you've done, how do they reach out to you? How do they find you? I have a website. It's MarthaWells.com, and that's the best place. Okay, and I know you got a Twitter because you just followed me. Yeah, I have a Twitter. Yeah, um, and again, I do apologize in advance. <laughs> okay. So just, just be... <laughs> Uh, just sore I'll be prepared. Kind of yeah, it's, I'll brace myself. You, you can mute me at any point. It's okay. fine. Yeah, okay. I won't, I won't, I'll never know. So, um, all right, so we're going to open up to questions. If anybody has any questions for Martha, uh, feel free to come on up and ask. Just come on up. I'll make sure we got your mic up here. Hi again. Here we go. Good? Yeah. Good. Um, so... I agree. Sarcasm. The sarcasm mm -hmm. is awesome. I love that. That's one driving factor for me. Um, the Harbors of the Sun, I think for me, like that whole Roxura trilogy, for me it was like trying to picture in my head like all the, the shape changing and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, how close do you think the covers are to what's in your head for what everyone looks like? At first when I thought... <coughs> Excuse me. At first, when I saw the cloud roads, um, I don't think it was that close, but his depiction 
was so good and he got so much detail in there that it was actually in the book that that depictions become a lot closer to my view in my head of what they look like. Um, that artist, um, God, now I've lost his name. Oh my. Um, what was it? Matthew. His first name's Matthew. We're going to have to edit this. Yeah, um, we can. I'll just send me the name. I'll just dub myself saying okay. Matthew Smith, right? Um, he's a he does a lot of game design. In fact, he's done Magic the Gathering cards. And so one of the things they ha as a gaming artist is you have to get the details right. And so he really did that, and um, it was beautiful. And it won a Chesley Award for uh, paperback cover. Um, so his depiction really came um, a lot closer. It's Matthew Stewart. I think. There we go. Okay. Um, pretty sure it is. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have to check that. Um, his depiction sort of like just being able to have that visual actually um, um, really influenced how I saw the characters. Um, I also think it's not quite the same, but uh, in the last two, the Edge of Worlds and the Harbors of the Sun, that artist was Yukari Maisuki. And she did a beautiful job too. And it's just, it's, it's like two people painting the same person, but just with this slightly different viewpoint. And it's just really cool. So that does make, bring up a good question. Um, when you have written a book and they put a cover on it, how much of that is you kind of influencing saying, oh, here's some artists I like, or here's a direction I'd like to go in? And how much of the publisher is saying, this is what we think will make the book look desirable on the shelf? It's pretty much all what we think, the, what the publisher thinks will make the book look desirable on the shelf. I mean, it's, um, the author, author doesn't usually get a lot of input. Um, we talked about this early in my talk earlier that sometimes you have like cover approval or something like that. But really, it's, it's kind of like, it's a specialized field is figuring out what should be on a book cover that will make it sell and will make, um, you know, the chain stores pick it up and, and that kind of thing. And it's, um, so usually, I don't think people usually end up in that situation where the cover is influences them. But this was just kind of a different thing. Also, the fact that it took that series went from, I think the first one came out in 2011, and then the last one came out in 2017. So there was a lot of time there um, of me seeing what the artists were depicting and, and um, what I was while, that, while I was writing it at the same time. And I'm not sure that usually happens. You have other questions. It is Matthew Stewart. That's right. Okay, thank you. Uh, this is just kind of a curiosity I have because I like asking it for famous people. Um, what's your favorite like pop culture thing that you've worked on that that you like being recognized for? Like or like someone mentions it that you've worked on and you're like, oh, I worked on that. That makes me happy. You're aware of that people love it, sort of thing. Probably this either Magic: The Gathering or Stargate Atlantis. I'll take compliments on those any time. I think I worked hard on them, and, and I think I did a good job. And, and it was also really enjoyable, particularly magic, getting to work with a group of people. Um, you know, having, coming up with a, a plot thing you weren't quite sure was going to work and being, having the world-building team, you know, think about it for you and stuff. And it just kind of was just kind of, I like working in groups, and I don't normally get to do that very often. Um, so that was those two, basically. And the Stargate Atlantis, just because I was such a Stargate fan, and that was my first time that I was getting to do things like watch TV and buy DVDs for work. So, um, you know, that was, 
that's been one of my favorites. When you, when you wrote for Magic, did they build you a deck? Did they kind of say, okay, Martha, so we're going to sit you down, we're going to show you how to play, you like, you like instant damage, that kind of stuff? No, they didn't want me to know too much about the game mechanics. Okay, I that's interesting. I hadn't played, I'd just seen all the art over the years, because um, I knew a lot of, I know a lot of fantasy and science fiction artists, and some of them have done Magic cards, and so I'd see the art, and uh, Donato Giancola has done uh, beautiful, beautiful paintings for Magic. Um, a lot of people have, and and so I knew the art, and I knew kind of the idea of the game, but I hadn't played it, and so they didn't want me to know that because they didn't want the story to be. In, they wanted the story to be influenced by the kind of the the colors that kind of are show the influence that the different characters have, mm-hmm. but they didn't want it to be influenced by the gaming actual gaming mechanic. That's interesting. So it wasn't just about uh, protecting the mechanics; it was about letting you also kind of do your own thing independent of it. Yeah, I think so. All right, we have another question over here. Who do you enjoy creating more, your heroes or your villains? Um, I don't have a lot of typical villains. Um, They're generally people that... I try to make them generally people who just want different things from the main characters. Um, That they're, you know, and some of those things may not be good things. Uh... So I, I think I enjoy just, but I do enjoy the heroes because they're, they're my viewpoint characters and I love them best, basically. But I try to not make everything really, really black and white, even though, because we, even though we've seen now in reality that sometimes it is black and white and sometimes people are just, just evil monsters for no reason. Um, so yeah, it's probably the heroes. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Do you ever find there's something interesting about maybe making, maybe making a hero that um, they aren't quite, they don't have an antagonist to fight against, but rather they might be kind of their own antagonist? Um, I, I kind of feel that in some of the, in the way you talk about your work that really the heroes, the thing they overcome is themselves in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think Murderbot particularly is its own worst enemy in a lot of ways. So Yeah, so in a way, you're also really enjoying writing your villains. Yes. <laughs> Come on, yeah, please. Come on up. Not to be a microphone hog, no, but it's fine. who's your favorite Stargate character, said the fellow Stargate nerd? Uh, um, it has to be John Shepard. I love, I love him. Um, Jack O'Neill is a close second. I also really like Taylor, um, and, and I, like, I like a lot of them. I don't really have a lot of people I, don't, I dislike. I know some fans will just have this whole list of characters they hate, and I've just never been that way. If I have that many characters I hate, I don't watch the show. Um, uh, Sam is a great character. Um, yeah, but those are probably the, I would say those are the top four. Um, John Shepard, Jack O'Neill, and then Taylor and Sam. Kind of a follow-up to her question, and slightly. Has there ever been a character you've created that you just hate? Either either you hated how it turned out, or you just don't like the character. Like, you might have loved writing for them, but you just hate that character. Um, not really, because once you write from someone's perspective, it's real hard to hate them. I can imagine circumstances where that would not happen, but I just have not written any characters like that. Um, there's an old story about, I think it was Gary, was it Gary Cooper who played a Nazi? In, he played Mengele? That sounds right. Yeah, I think it, he, it was the actor who played Mengele in a movie about... Um, yeah, World War II, and he was normally a method actor where you try to get really into the character's head, and he said he just couldn't do it for that character. He just had to rely on technique because he was too horrific to even 
think about what that those man that man's internal monologue was like. Basically, um, I've never really written a character like that. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, which is a disappointing answer, I know, but <laughs> well, but in a way, it isn't right because you know there, there, you have to spend a certain amount of time with these characters, right? Yeah, I and, mean, and I, I imagine it's hard to write a character that you don't enjoy spending some amount of time with. Yeah, and I've had characters that were very difficult to write that I still liked, like Nicholas from the Death of the Necromancer, because he's, um, and he's probably my first character that we really had kind of a really diff was really different, really thought and and kind of took in the world in a different way. His reactions to things are not typical reactions, and so. Writing him was a real learning experience, but it was kind of difficult at times. Any other questions? Come on up. Has there been any of reading colleagues' works, has there been any worlds that you've read immediately and gone, I want to start writing in there? Or like tell them, hey, you created a great world, I want to play in it. Uh, I've never told anyone that. Um, I've seen worlds that, yeah, I felt, I'm, I'm not sure anything that I wanted to leap in and start writing, because usually if I like it like that, I just want to read it. I just want to be, you know, I want to enjoy reading it. Um, like Rivers of London by Ben Aronovich. And I think that that's one of my favorite book series, but um, it's not something I could write just because his knowledge about um, London um, and that world really informs those books in a way that you know I don't think anybody else could, who, unless who who live unless they live there, you know, could really uh, duplicate that. So there's a lot of books I really like, and there's I occasionally hit ones where I think I wish I thought of that, but I would have done it in a different way than they did, which is good, you know. Well, Martha, thank you again. It's been wonderful having you on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, please come back anytime. And well, thank, thank you, you for, for coming to the library me. and coming to Green Bay. It's been great having you. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. This has been Martha Wells. Give it up for Martha. And we'll catch you next time on Serious Fun. And another big thanks to Martha Wells for agreeing to be on Serious Fun. Martha's a wonderful person, wonderful guest. Love talking to her. Hopefully going to get a chance to do it again. Thanks again to the Brown County Library for uh, putting this all together. Comic-Con, if you are ever able to go, one of the best events you can go to, especially for families uh, and also just if you're a tremendous nerd like me. Uh, and, of course, thanks to our team back here at Phoenix Studios, including Kate Farley, uh, who sort of put everything together. Uh, make sure you check out all the other Phoenix Studios shows at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. Check us out on the Stitcher Network. Uh, and stay tuned because next week uh, we are going to do one of two things. Um, there will be a new Serious Fun. I'm not sure if it's going to be another one from Comic-Con or if I'm going to be able to put together another uh, kind of fun interview before then. Either way, let's come back next week for a new episode of Serious Fun. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.